First uh, Corinthians eight is is where you will be, and as as we go into that, I want you to play out this imaginary scenario with me. There's few enough of you here that we can actually interact a little bit, but I want you to think through this. Let's say that we're going to get together, Carrie and I and you and your significant other, Friday night, we're going to go out to eat somewhere, and so we get to ask you the question, where do you want to eat Friday night? Now, what's your answer? Yeah, most of you, most of us, we have this politeness about us, right? Like we have this thing that's actually, I think it's actually scripted in us. And if the four of us were going to dinner in that moment, you would say, I bet, I don't care, you pick. Honest now, how many of you, that's your response? That's what you tell your husband, your wife. It's not really what you mean, but it's what you say, right? Yeah. So now here's the thing. Let's say you say you don't care and I say, awesome. I was thinking we would get dressed up and go to Taco Bell. Now what happens, right? It's Friday night. We planned this a month out. You got dressed up. We're heading to Taco Bell, and suddenly you care, right? You told me you didn't care, but now you care. But the reality is we actually cared long before I suggested Taco Bell. You just thought I would make a better decision than that, so you handed off your power, and now you're stuck trying to figure out how to tell me I'm an idiot for picking Taco Bell. Now, another scenario, you walk into a clothing store looking for a new pair of shoes, and the clerk says, now, you're not just looking for any shoes, you're looking for a new pair of brown shoes, and the clerk says, can I help you? And your response? No, I'm just looking. How many of you, that's your response? Like, it's just the thing in us. One more, one more scenario. Remember when you were a kid, and some of you really remember this, you didn't have cell phones. They didn't exist. So it was a real phone plugged into the wall. Mom was in the shower. The phone began to ring, and you picked up, and someone asked, can I talk to your mom? What was your response? She's not available, right? She's not here. Now, listen, all of these scenarios that I've kind of thrown out there, they're scripts, We have cultural scripts in our communities, and most of the time, they are good. They keep things from getting awkward. No one who calls your house wants to know that mom is in the shower. We just don't need to share that information, right? Like, you get in an elevator, the script is you face forward. That's what you do. And you don't talk, hopefully, right? Like, keep the script normal. Scripts help us navigate life with low amount of hiccups. And I ask what you want for dinner, and you don't care until you do. Right? I asked Carrie what she wants for dinner, and she doesn't care, which literally means pick one of my three favorite places. Don't screw this up. It's a different script, but it still keeps life smooth. And another script we have, you know this one, and I'm breaking it today, the script that says to us culturally, don't discuss personal finances, sex, religion, or politics. That's right. The script tells us not to speak about these things. And yet... We are culturally inundated with messages about every one of those issues. Our cultural script says it's not polite to be sitting, uh, let's go to Taco Bell, with friends asking them how much money is in their checking account or when the last time they were intimate with each other was. You just don't have that script. Our script says don't bring up whether they're more conservative or liberal or how they feel about end times theology and the nature of God. That's our script. At the personal level, avoid it. But every day we see thousands of ads and social media marketing full of messages about those very things we are told not to talk about. Telling us the ins and outs of certain medication, how to spend less and make more, where we'll find more spiritual meaning, and which side of the political spectrum is the most evil. Now, here's what I've noticed in this. I hope this makes sense. In all this, we have the script telling us not to talk about these things, yet everywhere and everyone around us is talking about these things. 
And so we sort of stumble into this talking about these things online with those that we feel are safe, but we struggle with how to do that well, especially, as you've noticed, maybe when it comes to politics. Like religion, money, sex, we still seem to avoid those things. But politics, three weeks before the election, we can't not talk about it, right? And it's messy. And I want to tell you where this leaves us because it's where we are right now. When it comes to politics, culturally, we have an argument script, That's what we have right now in our world. We have a script for how to argue. Just like the I don't care answer to where we eat, we have developed a way to discuss politics, especially online, with those who hold different views than us. Now, I know some of you, we talked about this last week, some of you are still clinging to the I'm just not political statement. Can can we just get through this series? Justin, would you just move to Thanksgiving? That's where we should be. Life will be better when Thanksgiving and Christmas rolls around, right? But but some of you are clinging onto that, and you want to stay out out of it, or you say you don't care, or you can't wait for it to be over. But remember, what I told you last week is this, to not be political is a political statement. And and I would say it this way, saying you don't care about politics is like saying you don't care where we go to eat. You can say that as long as in your perspective the right candidate gets elected. But if we elect Taco Bell, you're suddenly going to start to care and complain for the next four years. Are you with me? When you say you don't care, more often than not, you're lying to yourself and or you're lying to those around you. But for those of you who do care, we've adopted this argument script. And the way the script works is simple. I want to explain it to you and then we're going to unpack it more later. But it's simple. It works like this. When we engage someone with different opinions than us, especially political opinions, the argument script urges us to approach these people with something that writers call an adversarial frame of mind. Here's what that means. They are the enemy because we disagree. So because we disagree, you are now my enemy in this argument. Now let me tell you where this comes from. Uh, Originally, and you can trace this historically, originally it came from Greek tradition that deeply influenced our Western education. Students were taught early on, they were taught, pick your position and defend it at all costs. That's how education worked. In fact, the Latin term for school was the word ludus, and it most frequently meant a type of military training exercise. To go to school was to learn to argue and to fight. So we were geared up for that. Now, here's where the argument script takes us today. And all you have to do is see if I'm telling the truth is think about your Facebook feed, okay? Some of you, I see you on Facebook. I see your feed too, okay? So here's what the argument script looks like. There's several characteristics. First one is this. Consideration equals condoning, okay? That's what the script tells us. If you even consider someone else's perspective, you are viewed as compromising. That's what the script tells us. Typically, if you suspend your judgment long enough to understand a person's point of view from the other often demonized side, you are seen as a traitor to your community. Are you with me? For example, you are Republican, but you're engaging with someone who's pro-choice, and rather than writing them off immediately, you want to understand why do they think like they do. And immediately, you are considered by your community as weak. And let me be honest here. This is often strongest from Christians. We're afraid that if we listen to something that believes differently than we do, we will fall apart. And so the script says, if you consider, you're condoning. It's not necessarily a true script, but that's what the script tells us. Here's a second characteristic. Monologue is greater than dialogue. Have you noticed? This plays right in. If you dialogue with the opposition, it's dangerous and it may cause you to question the right beliefs of your side. So instead, here's what we do. We form what someone calls calculated monologues. We draw conclusions in advance of the conversation. By the way, this argument script works in marriages too. 
Like, we don't listen to the explanation. We have a calculated monologue, and we are responding. We don't need the dialogue. I don't need you in this argument. I know what's true. Here's the third piece of the argument script. Disagreeing is not enough. You have to demonize. It's not okay to just disagree. You've got to demonize. So common today, one group identifies their beliefs as sacred, and to defend their beliefs, they use language of the opposing view that inflames and make the other side perceived as evil. Let me give you examples of how other side is demonized. You've heard these statements. All Democrats want to kill babies. All Republicans hate immigrants. Every Democrat is socialist. Every Republican is racist. If you're feminist, you hate men. If you're Christian, you're intolerant and unloving. Are you with me? This is demonization. Here's the last part of this argument script. We argue, especially online, with something called online disinhibition. Now, let me break this down. This is so important. Mass communication scholars today identify this trait. What it means is that when we are online... Engaged in these arguments, we feel unrestrained by the normal social conventions. You don't act as human online as you do in person. You're disinhibited. So we communicate without filters. I had a conversation with somebody online not too long ago, and we were going back and forth, and the statements were blunt. There was kind of force to them as he, as he was responding. Then I saw this person at a soccer game, and it was like, hey, how you doing? I'm great, but you were a jerk last week. Right? Because the filters were off. What this boils down to when we're online, we're shielded from the impact that it has on others. If you are online, you don't see the hurt or the anger, so you cannot empathize. When God created us, he gave us mirror neurons in our brains that allows us to empathize with people. When we go online, we're disinhibited. And the other problem with this is that we offer these real-time responses. Someone comments on your feed, you comment back, they comment back, and you are suddenly yelling because you haven't taken the time to slow down. You're doing this real-time response thing. Communication scholars call this flaming. I love this, and I'm going to start commenting. Stop flaming. Settle down. All right, so this is our script. And I think, I think I can safely say this, that we've all been victims of this and we've all been perpetrators of this. Every single one of us, we've been caught in this script where we just want to be listened to and instead have been ignored or worse, accused. And we've been caught attacking someone else when they just wanted to be heard. It doesn't take much effort to see this around us, does it? Like, like, personally, this isn't working. And nationally, it's absolutely not working. We've seen this on display in two different debates now. We've seen it in our news media. We see it in social media conversations. The argument script, just like saying we don't care where we eat, is everywhere. And it's failing to make us better as humans. And it's failing to make us better as a country. Now, last week, I asked you this question as we started in this series called Citizens, talking about the politics of Jesus and the kingdom of God. I asked you this question. Are you willing to filter your politics through the lens of your faith? Or will you make your faith fit your politics? We've got to be honest about that. We've got to start there. And today I want to look at how the early church in a city called Corinth dealt with a specific argument. Because I think Paul teaches them a way of arguing that we need to grab onto. Because it's okay to disagree. We say this all all the time. You don't have to agree with us to be with us. Disagreement, growth together is an okay thing. But we've lost this in our culture. Now, I want to look at this passage from 1 Corinthians 8, where the early church in Corinth was walking through some really clear disagreements. And I want to see, I want you to see how Paul dealt with this. Look at verse 1 of chapter 8. Here's where it starts. It says, now about food, sacrifice to idols. And just pause there, because this is a brand new topic in the letter of Corinthians. 
you have to get the context of the city and what's taking place that Paul is addressing to get the thinking here. In Rome, even today, now I want you to think about this. In Rome, even today, there's a restaurant built around the ruins of an old uh, temple. And in this restaurant, two of the pillars of the temple are still visible. So the restaurant makes a feature of them and is proud of the ancient origins of this building. But what people don't always pay attention to when they're eating there is that in the ancient temples... The temples of the ancient world were the restaurants. Each city, like Corinth, had plenty of temples to gods or goddesses and to the Roman emperor and members of his family. See, the emperors were considered gods. And people would come to these temples and they would bring animals to sacrifice. And once the animal was sacrificed, it would be cooked. And the family might have a meal in the temple with the sacrificial meat as the centerpiece. So usually there was more meat than the worshipers could eat. And so other people would come to the temple and they would purchase the leftover sacrificial meat in the temple. And it was kind of a restaurant. So when Paul starts here, this is what he's talking about. Jesus' followers, people who had put their faith in Christ, eating food in the temple restaurants that had been sacrificed to idols. And the argument, the question at hand is, should believers in Jesus eat food that had been sacrificed to idols? The complexity of this question is so fun, right? Now look at what Paul says, verse 1. Now about food sacrificed to idols, you know the context. Here's what he says. We know, and then he quotes this, we all, we know that we all possess knowledge. Now this was common thinking. Paul seemed to be naming here this, this quote, we all possess knowledge, was kind of a political, a cultural, a religious argument. You could think of it as, as kind of a political slogan. When someone says, make America great again, they're saying a lot more than just that. Wouldn't it be great if we could walk up to somebody and say, I believe we should make America great again and not be like, yeah, or oh, you're a hypocrite, right? There's so much that goes behind that statement, and people who use that statement today are often that saying that we're with Trump, his agenda, his regime, even his style of politics. Back in 2008, when President Obama ran, he ran on the slogan, yes, we can. There was more to that, right? There was more being said there. What's being said by Paul here is that there were a group of Christians who were saying, well, we all possess knowledge, saying eating at these temples, and they were claiming the special knowledge that made them immune to what they were eating, and whether it was given to idols or not. They understood this argument. Now, Paul goes on in verse 1. He says, but knowledge puffs up while love builds up. Now, you need to just circle that, highlight, underline, write that on your mirror, put that in your phone, put it on Facebook every day for the next three weeks. Like We're going to come back to this. But this is the centerpiece of Paul's teaching here. Paul's about to explain the nature of the argument in a way through it, but he centers the argument not on knowledge, but on love. And that brings me to my question for you today. Do your political positions, do your political arguments, do they lead from a place of love? Are your arguments driven by love? Are the things that you're standing for politically, are they motivated by love? Are they worth sacrificing love? So he calls these believers, those disagreeing with each other, to build each other. Don't just puff yourselves up. Don't just think you know a lot, but build each other up with love. Now look at verse 4. Here's what he goes on to say. So then, about eating food to sacrifice, sacrifice to idols. We know that an idol is nothing at all in the world and that there is no God but one. He's quoting the common arguments. 
He's saying, here's the knowledge that you have. There's, there's no God but one, and idols, nothing in the world. Here's, here's what he says. He goes on in verse 6. Yet for us, there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things came and for whom we live. And there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. Now, Paul is dealing with this. Are we, are we leading from a place of love with our political positions, our cultural arguments, our religious faith? If we're to answer that question, if we're to find a new way of arguing, disagreeing, I think what Paul's saying first here, we need a new script that's built on love, and I think he's calling this out in the church. If we're going to have these conversations that come out of love, we have to come clean about our idols. That's what he says first. We've got to come clean about the idols in our lives. Now listen, I know we don't live in a Roman city with polished temples, right? But idolatry and the sacrifices demanded by our idols remain a critical piece of our daily lives, especially, friends, in the realm of our politics. We are living in a political climate where it's easy to be sucked into this culture of charisma coming from our preferred leader or a preferred candidate and let it carry us to the point of idolatry. You can find, you can go and research this, you can find any number of books, articles, studies that show how Soviet communism, though claiming to be atheistic, was a religion which idolized certain people and ideas. It's not hard to find that. And we can find other studies and books and literature that equate Western capitalism to religious status. We see this, right? We see this almost idol worship of, of trickle-down economics in, in ways that even in the face of growing inequality in our country, people still hold up as, no, this is the answer to everything. And the reality is, here's the reality for most of us, we would rather, we would prefer as Jesus followers, we would feel more comfortable, we would rather talk about idolatry through the lens of first century Roman shrines rather than 21st century American media. And yet some of us worship, can I just call this out? Some of us worship at the shrines of CNN or Fox News way more consistently than at the throne of Jesus. The word of God may have authority, but if it comes from our preferred news source, then we will orient our lives and political opinions to the views of our false gods. If I sufficiently offended every perspective in the room, because this is just the intro, right? It, we have to come clean about our idols because our idols are not shy about trying to gain our worship. Our idols want our attention. We have candidates who build their identities through extraordinarily negative means. They convince followers what they will not do and how they will not compromise. They convince us that their proposed solutions are entirely their own ideas. And in order to convince us, they warp interpretations of the past and future. We've seen this all through the campaigns. One writer says, there's an allure to this kind of politics, a sense of falling, of vertigo. We fall in love with a candidate. We fall in hatred toward another we fall through a dizzying contagious mixture of appeals to loyalty and identity so what does it mean to come clean about our own idolatry where have we placed confidence in human power above god's power i think that's the question we need to ask where are we putting our faith our confidence in human power above god's power see the state and the politicians become idols when we attribute powers to them that rightly belong to god alone when we think that a political machine or more specifically one party or one candidate can provide justice or mercy grace or forgiveness we have elevated that party or that leader to the status of a false god in our lives which explains, I'm telling you, which explains why we will see so many crushed on November 4th after their false god has been defeated. Or December, whenever they decide that the election's over. Whatever that's going to look like. 
But I'm telling you that the despair, the depression, the fear, the anger, the anxiety, those are results of idolatry. There's no other way to say that. When these things consume us and these people or these ideas or the technology or the money are placed higher than the authority of God himself, we are just as guilty of idolatry as any worshiper at a Roman temple. Friends, let's call this out, right? Look at November 5th. Think about two days after the election and imagine your preferred candidate for president or governor or senate or dog catcher, I don't care, loses. How will you react? What emotion will you carry? I want to say disappointment is okay. Sadness is okay. But an all-consuming depression, a raging anger, an obsessive fear, a hopelessness for the future of our world... These are the signs of the false grips of idolatry that every false god uses to consume us. We have to come clean about our idols. Now, Paul goes on. Look at verse 7. He says this, but not everyone possesses this knowledge. What knowledge? The knowledge that idols are false, that God alone is real and, and is the Savior. It's not simple for everyone. See, Paul, in continuing to keep love at the center, is about to transition his way of arguing to help us focus on the ones beside us who are weaker than us. He says, not everyone gets that idols are false. Here's what he goes on to say, and I love this verse. He says, some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat sacrificial food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to a god. And since their conscience is weak, it is defiled. Verse 8. But food does not bring us near to God. We are no worse if we do not eat and no better if we do. Now just kind of go with me here. I want to unpack this. Paul says here, not everyone recognizes the worthlessness of idols. Not everybody gets that the idol is false. Not everybody has that knowledge. Remember his argument from before. He says knowledge doesn't do much but puff up. He says not everybody's there. And then he says this, and I love this phrase, some people are still so accustomed to idols. Do you know what this is like? Think, think about this for a minute. This is like the smell in your car or your house that you don't notice. Are you with me? If we had more college kids here, they'd be like, amen. Like, I, I get it. Like, if I walk in your house or sit down in your car, there may be some funk. All of us have some funk. Like, in our house, the guy that built our house was my uncle, and, and when he built the house, he figured out that mice get into the house, and they go to one spot, and they die. It's in Stephanie's bedroom. So down the line, he cut a piece of the drywall out, put plexiglass up, so when the mice die, we just have to unscrew it, pull their little crusty bodies out, and get rid of them. Now here's how we notice, right? Here's how we notice. When the funk smell starts to come, we're like, oh, there's a dead mouse. And there are days where my wife will walk in and go, I smell a mouse. I smell death. That's what she said. I smell death. I'm like, no, I don't smell it. And she's usually right because I don't notice the funk. And here's the reality, right? The longer we are in the funk, the less aware we are of the funk. This is the principle, right? This is the principle for life. I share this with teams and organizations all the time. Your time in erodes your awareness of. The longer you're a part of something funky, the less aware you are that it's funky. Okay, Paul says this about idols. He says, some of you have been worshiping false gods so long, you can't let go of the false god. I don't miss this point. Paul says their conscience is so weak. They're so accustomed to the funk of idols that they don't realize food has nothing to do with bringing us closer to God or not. It doesn't matter. Now, can we apply this to our own context? Let me be honest with you. Growing up, as a Christian teenager, I used to think anyone I saw with a beer was like really making God mad. Like, why would you do that? 
right? Like alcohol. Are you kidding me? And the older I got, the clearer this became. And this becomes simple. Like if you're a recovering alcoholic, stay away from it. If you're under 21, you're disobeying the authority. Scriptures are clear on that. You're sinning, right? We don't have to shade that. No doubt, but for those who don't battle alcoholism, who, like me, are okay with a good glass of wine, don't think that the funk of the wine is all that funky. This is the Hebrew, right? I'm just, (laughs) wish there was a word. Theologians call these things, listen, theologians call these things Christian liberties. These are the places where there are gray areas. Scripture doesn't actually read like a checklist. It's a story. Right? Like alcohol is a great example. The person doesn't struggle. They don't battle alcoholism. They're not overcompensating. They're not self-medicating. They're at liberty. They're free to engage that. Drunkenness is clear. Don't do that. Right? But the, the Christian liberty exists. I know others, they want to argue over the type of music used in church. If you have drums, you're wrong. No drums. That's sinful. What? If you use any Bible other than the King James Version, you're out there. I got a secret for you. Jesus didn't speak Old English. Like it didn't happen. I went to college. Where I went to college, they didn't think instruments should be used in worship. These are all ridiculous things that there are no clear biblical commands about. And you know what? Can I let you in on a little something that might reshape how you think politically? You ready for this? Most, most political issues, the majority of them, they fall into the category of Christian liberties. That's where most political positions fall. Now listen, I know this is controversial and you know this is controversial, but Jesus is bigger than letting himself be co-opted to any one political party. One preacher says, he didn't come to be on your side, he didn't come to take sides, he came to take over. That's the story of Jesus. But everybody, listen, everybody I know today, every single person I know wants a piece of Jesus. They want Jesus on their side. And you know what? I know enough. Listen, I'm telling you, I've spent enough student debt about the Bible that if I really worked at it, I could prove any side you throw at me. You want me to convince you biblically that being Republican is right? I could do it. You want me to convince you being Democrat is right? I could, I could do that too. Libertarian? Yep, we could do that. Because here's what happens. It's like one of my favorite preachers says. Here's, what, here's what, what happens. When we interpret the words of Jesus through our political lens, it's amazing. Here's what he says. We often think, Jesus, he's so red. He's so blue. It's amazing how often he agrees with you. It's kind of what we think. Now, I'm not talking about biblical issues, biblical, unarguable, biblical commands. Like when we read scripture, you cannot make a political argument that murder is okay. You can't do that. You can't argue that injustice is okay. You can't argue that the destruction of unborn children is okay. You can't do that. You cannot take a stance biblically. My understanding of scripture, I know, but you can't argue when a group of people cries out for others to realize their lives are being threatened due to their race. You can't argue and diminish that with all lives matter statements. And that's not an endorsement of an organization. That is a biblical message. That's the truth. I'm not talking about those things. I'm talking about all the other stuff. Questions like what type of economic system works best? How much involvement should the government have in day-to-day life? What's the best way to manage immigration? How should healthcare work? There, there, there are vast canyons of freedom there. We have to be honest about this. And when we realize this, when we realize that our time in erodes our awareness of the funk around our political beliefs, we can begin to have new conversations. Don't you long for new conversations? New disagreements and discussions that are rich and challenge each other with biblical truth and move us deeper in our faith without demonizing someone who's bringing their own funk. The person that you're arguing with, they're funky too. Without demonizing them and what they're bringing to the conversation. So let me say this. Don't become so accustomed to idols 
that you lose the ability to love in the middle of the disagreements. Don't become so accustomed to those idols. But there's a caution here, and Paul makes it so clear. He goes on, he says, be careful, however, now don't miss this, be careful that the exercise of your rights does not become a stumbling block to the weak. Now, this is where Paul flips the script. He literally works through these arguments the Corinthians are having with, with each other. They're arguing, going, we think eating in the temple is fine. The meat doesn't bother us. We're just eating food. And others are saying, how can you eat the meat? It was for a sacrifice. How dare you eat something from a secular place? You ever had these conversations about music, Christian music, secular music? And it takes us right along the lines of our argument culture. We want to be proven right. Come on, Paul, tell us who's right. And right about this point, the people who are eating in the idol temples are saying, see, we knew we were right. Idols are nothing. Food doesn't bring us closer to God. Even Paul says so, and they're feeling good. They're going to win. Their candidate has showed up, and he's on their side. And Paul throws this statement that turns everything on its head. Be careful that the exercise of your rights does not become a stumbling block. To the weak. He goes on, he says, For if someone with a weak conscience sees you with all your knowledge eating in an idol's temple, won't that person be emboldened to eat with sacrifice to idols? So this weak brother or sister for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. When you sin against them in this way and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Now, now here's my question. How are they destroyed? How does me eating just good food in an idol's temple hurt them? Because we made the issue about our knowledge rather than about love for the brother or sister we're hurting. We thought the argument was about us being right rather than them being loved. You know what Paul's saying here? I think he's saying this. Your freedom in Christ should never destroy the hearts of others. You should never use your freedom in Christ in a way that's going to destroy the heart of others. You ready for some some preaching? Because maybe I haven't stepped on your feet enough today. Friends, this is where our political perspectives have become the idol that's so deeply ripping our faith communities apart today. Many of us are using our claim to freedom in ways that are destroying the people around us. See, I I would say it this way. We're so fixated on freedom for the me that we forget the love for the we. We've become obsessed with this, right? Let let me give you some some examples, right? Let's talk about pro-life. I'm unashamedly pro-life and... I know women who've been in the unbelievably hard position of making a choice to have an abortion. And because of the obsession of Christians, listen, because of the obsession of Christians with a political issue more than a personal crisis, these women are still convinced that God hates them. That's the reality. When we talk about human sexuality and homosexuality, I believe the scriptures teach a doctrine, a consistent theology, a consistent ethic that holds up heterosexual marriage and celibacy and singleness as the way of flourishing for men and women, as God's design. And you can disagree with me. You're not going to be cast out of our church. Many disagree with me, but I refuse to believe that a fixation on this issue is worth sacrificing a, our homosexual and transgender brothers and sisters to the unbelievable rates of depression and suicide that they face. This is a justice issue. When we talk about masculinity today, let's, let's, let's go to another issue, because why not? I, I believe anyone who abuses or assaults a woman or a child or a man, for that matter, is committing a horrible sin against the image of God. And we, as followers of Jesus, should do everything we can to stop things like that from happening. But I also believe the obsession with this pursuit has been carried so far that we've left young boys and retired men alike in a space where the confusion over what it means to be a good, godly man who follows Jesus is crippling the men of God that I know. 
We're in this weird space. You have to understand the reality of your and others' freedom in Christ. There's so much room to disagree, but to engage in a disagreement that destroys somebody's heart and doesn't take into account with compassion their pain is to be dishonoring to the very nature of who Christ is. We miss that. The freedom for the me has often caused us to lose sight of the love for the we. One, one more note about this, and I'm about done. Some of you need to hear this point I just made because you have or are with your version of politics literally causing others to be destroyed. You're knowledgeable, but you have no love. And your lack of love is leaving them by the side of the road wondering where Jesus went. But some of you, some others of you, some of you need to own the fact that you've been following Jesus long enough that it's time to grow up and get over the petty spiritual things you fixate on. I had a professor in seminary, he's a German guy. And listen, you just need to know this, Germans love beer. It's just the way it works. And he was a brilliant, brilliant man. And when he took this job with the seminary, they said, well, we, we love you. We want you to be here. We want you to come and be a part of this. And, and, and there's just one thing. You've got to uphold our community standards. And their community standards, they were, they were a good Baptist school. They said, there's no drinking here, even from our faculty. And he said, I can honor that if you honor the biblical command and admit to me that you're the weaker brother. He says this to the board of the seminary. If you're the weaker brother, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 8, then I will honor you. I don't want to destroy you with my freedom. And they said, fine, we're the weaker brother. <laughs> so he took the job. Later on, they changed their, their policies. Some of us, we need to admit that we just need to grow up in our religiousness. Paul concludes this passage with a powerful final statement. Here's what he says. Therefore, if what I eat causes my brother or sister to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause them to fall. In 2013, the conservative talk show host Glenn Beck received an award from a media company for what this, this group deemed as his work protecting the First Amendment. And as, as Beck received the award, he said this in his acceptance speech. He said, for any role that I've played in dividing, I wish I can take that back. I don't wish I could take back the truth that was spoken, but perhaps, not perhaps, many times, I could have said it differently. It's such a fascinating moment to me because it seems like Glenn Beck, who's one of the most outspoken practitioners of the argument cultural script, was realizing his own involvement in dividing our country. During the early years of Obama's presidency, bumper stickers were produced urging others to pray for Obama, inciting Psalm 109, verse 8. Pray for our president. Psalm 109, verse 8. Sounds like a great Christian sentiment, doesn't it? But that verse simply says, May his days be few, may another take his office. May his children be fatherless and his wife a widow. After the tragic shooting of U.S. House of Representative member Gabby Giffords in 2011, remember when she was shot along with 18 others, Keith Olbermann, another more liberal newscaster, suspended his segment that he called the worst person in the world because of the division that he saw in our country. Sarah Palin removed from her website at the same time a map with crosshairs placed over 20 Democratic congressional districts. President Obama's speech at the time urged that our nation, quote, make sure that we are talking with each other in a way that heals, not a way that wounds. In this brilliant chapter, Paul starts by saying, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. And he closes with the answer to a new way of arguing. He says, if what I eat causes my brother or sister to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause them to fall. Friends, the answer to our cultural script of arguing is compassion for our brothers and sisters. If we as followers of Jesus can model anything as citizens of the kingdom, 
and embodying the way of Jesus in our politics, it's to regain, reclaim as God-given our compassion and our empathy. I worry because it seems like we've lost it. So we have to recognize the knowledge, the difference between knowledge and love. It's too easy to perpetuate the argument. It's too easy, too common, too endorsed by political leaders to simply perpetuate this argument script. I I don't care. I really don't. I don't care what you think politically in this conversation. I care how you think it and how you present it and how you practice it and how you embody the love of Christ. This week's vice presidential debate concluded with a question from an eighth grader that I thought was the best question I've heard. And she said it this way, when I watch the news, all I see is arguing between Democrats and Republicans. When I watch the news, all I see is citizen fighting against citizen. When I watch the news, all I see is two candidates from opposing parties trying to tear each other down. If our leaders can't get along, how are our citizens supposed to get along? Then she concluded, your examples could make all the difference to bring us together. Her question, if our leaders can't get along, how are our citizens supposed to get along? Can I reframe the question as we close today? If our followers of Christ can't get along, how are our citizens supposed to see Christ? The one verse I didn't read to you from Paul's letter here is where I want to close. He says, knowledge puffs up, love builds up. And he goes on. He says, those who think they know something don't yet know as they ought to know. I love Paul, right? Those who think they got this whole thing figured out, they don't don't know what they ought to know. Paul says, you know a lot. You know the issues. You know arguments. Some of you are absolutely amazing with your wealth of knowledge from political issues. I am so impressed. I wish I was that smart. But he says, maybe you think you know, but you don't know as you ought to know. And I ask that question, how should we know? And it's brilliant, right? Verse 3, the part I didn't read. Paul says, whoever loves, but whoever loves is known by Whoever loves is known by God. Knowledge puffs up. Paul says all of y'all know a bunch of stuff. That's, that's great, but you need to not know all the stuff. You need to be known by God. It's not as important that you know all the facts. You are known by God. If we love God, we are known by God. It's the only way those things go together. When we lead with our knowledge, we do nothing but puff out. When we lead with love for God, we will be known intimately by him. So as we close couple questions just for thought for reflection i want you to be wrestling with are your political positions leading from love are your political positions leading from love are your arguments driven by love and then are they worth sacrificing love think about this when you you're going to hit some of this election stuff is not going to be easy after the election because you've got thanksgiving and some of that family is going to show up some of you are like nope social distancing they're not allowed to come this year i get that right Some of you are going to sit down at that Thanksgiving table, and you're going to dive deep into these arguments immediately. Here's the question, please, and and the challenge. Is it worth sacrificing the relationship to be right? Is it worth it? Is it worth it? Will you come clean about your idols? Can you be honest about the idols in your life, whether it's political or relational or financial, emotional, whatever it is? And can you love the person beside you in the middle of the political arguments? And then maybe the most important thing we need to hear is our freedom destroying the hearts of others. Is our claim to freedom, our work to be right, is it destroying the freedom of others around us? Many hold to idols because of fear. We're afraid what's going to happen to our country if our candidate, our position doesn't win. I'm challenging you today, three weeks out of a presidential election, that's probably the most divisive thing we've ever seen in our country. I'm challenging you hold to Jesus instead. Let's stand and pray together.